Oh, uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to see you all here and to join with you as we, we look at the Word together. We're continuing in the book of Romans, so that, please have that passage that Teresa opened, uh, read for us earlier. Have that open in front of you as we look at Romans 14 and 15 uh, together. And let me, let me just pray again, committing this time to the Lord as we start. Our Father, we, we do pray that your Word now would be faithfully spoken, clearly heard, and wholeheartedly obeyed and believed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know that it's true that a church can undo the truth that it proclaims by the way that it lives. That we can talk about the gospel of God's grace And we can talk about how loving and kind and merciful and compassionate our God is. But then the culture of the church that proclaims that is so opposite to that, that actually it ends up undermining whether or not we really do believe that that's true. So the culture of a church can undermine the preaching or the proclamation of a church. And what should the culture of a church that proclaims the gospel be like? The culture of a church, that is the tone and the interactions and the atmosphere of a church that proclaims the gospel, should look and taste and smell like the gospel. We should have a gospel culture that both is the result of gospel preaching and is also supporting gospel preaching. And Paul, this is Paul's chief concern throughout these chapters of Romans. He spends chapters 1 to 11 explaining the gospel, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel of God's grace and mercy. Now he's trying to say, in view of that grace and mercy, this is what a church ought to look like in terms of the way that it behaves, the way that it interacts with each other, the way that it interacts with the world outside. In other words, he's moving from the proclamation of the gospel to the culture of the gospel. Paul puts it another way in, um, in another one of his, his letters. He describes Timothy. Uh, he describes the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth, the, the supporting structure of the truth. We proclaim the truth, but the church, by the way that it lives, upholds that truth, presents it, holds it out, so that they not only hear it from us, but they see it in us. That's the point. We all know this. We all agree with this. We've all experienced when it hasn't been that way. And we've all delighted when we've seen that it has been that way. But here's the challenge. That we live in a church, uh, we live in churches and we are part of churches where people hold to different opinions. And those opinions are strongly held. Christians think that what they believe matters. And that means that we have strong views about the way things should be done, about the way that we should act, about the way that we should live. And that is a good thing. It's a good thing to have passion and conviction and belief. And it's it's a symptom of something good, isn't it? A problem. When you have problems of conflicts of passion and beliefs, that's a good thing. Because if everyone just didn't care and was apathetic, 
something would be wrong. But it's not without its problems. One person very strongly believes that the organ is the only appropriate instrument for worship. Another person very strongly believes that the organ should have no place in the church's worship today. As the joke goes, the only thing that took longer uh, than getting the organ out of church was getting the organ into church in the first place. One set of Christians believes that the only contemporary songs should be sung because the church is a contemporary people. Another group of Christians strongly believe that we should also sing, or perhaps exclusively sing, ancient hymns because the church is an ancient people of God and only those hymns have the appropriate theological depth. Another person believes strongly that we should only dress formally to church as a show of our respect and reverence to God. Another person strongly believes that we should dress informally to church so that we may be as welcoming to those on the outside as possible and because God doesn't look upon the outside but upon the heart. One person believes strongly that we are free to enjoy with thanksgiving to God things like alcohol and a cigar. Another Christian believes strongly that those things are off-limits for all Christians. One person believes strongly that the service of worship should be spontaneous and that the prayers and nothing should be set or prepared or written down but should just flow out of a, a heart that wants to give thanks to God and whether it's messy or imperfect, it should be from the heart. Another Christian believes that all prayers should be set and prepared because it's more meaningful and, and uh, more accurate, more faithful to teach the church and connect us to the church's history. I could go on, but I think that you get the point. Now, when lots of Christians strongly believe lots of different things, how on earth is a church supposed to maintain a culture of graciousness and accepting one another. This is the key thing that comes out in our passage today. You could see, for example, in chapter 15, verse 7, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. Accept one another. Don't judge one another. Chapter 14, verse 13, therefore, therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. In other words, how do we create an accepting culture in the church when we believe so strongly about these things? And this is precisely what's going on in the context to which Rome, uh, Paul's writing in Rome. You've got a church that at one point in its history was strongly Jewish in the way that it did things, in its culture. There would have been a, a care and concern about what you could and couldn't eat. There would have been a care and a concern about what days should be observed and what days shouldn't be observed as holy days. Then all the Jews and Jewish Christians with them are exiled from Rome, leaving only the Gentile Christians behind. So all the Jewish leaders are gone, leaving only Gentile leaders. All the Jewish Christians are gone, leaving only Gentile Christians. And the culture of the church changes dramatically from being a, a church with a kind of Jewish flavor and Jewish cares and concerns about secondary issues to a, a Gentile flavor with Gentile cares and concerns about secondary issues. 
And then the exile is brought to an end, and all the Jewish Christians are brought back, including those who were former leaders. And they just come back into church, and lo and behold, it's not their church anymore. It's a very different place now. Nobody's bothered about the observance of Jewish holy days. Nobody's concerned about what you should and shouldn't eat. There is pork at the church lunch after church. How on earth is this going to work? And this is what Paul's writing into. And when he speaks about the weaker and the stronger brother, he's talking about basically being the stronger brother, the Gentile, the Gentile church. It's not exclusively the case. You can have Gentiles with, who are weaker, in Paul's opinion. But basically, the, the Jewish Christians, he considers to be the weaker brother. The Gentile Christians, he considers to be the stronger brother. Be, not because they are weaker or stronger Christians, or because their beliefs are weaker or stronger, they have less conviction. But he considers the Jewish Christians weaker because they have a weaker understanding of the freedom that is now theirs in the gospel. The Gentile Christians are stronger because they have a stronger understanding of the freedom that is now theirs in the gospel. Paul, a Jew, counts himself as a stronger brother because he understands that those Jewish observances, they don't have to hold him anymore. He can eat pork if he wants to. And Paul's not saying it's okay to be weaker, it's okay to be stronger. No, no, over time, we want everyone to understand the gospel more fully and embrace the freedom that they have. But what he is saying is that until we all get there, we should accept everyone. The weaker should accept the stronger. The stronger should accept the weaker. Those who understand the gospel the freedom that comes by the gospel should accept those who are still struggling to understand that and those who are struggling to understand why some Christians think some things are okay and I don't should accept their conscience on those matters. So when the Bible has not been clear or clearly taught something, it's fantastic to have an opinion, says Paul, but keep that opinion to yourself and don't judge others by it. So you put it this way, I was speaking to, um, actually, before I get there, here's Paul's solution. That's the problem. This is where we're, where we're aiming for, a culture that reflects the gospel of graciousness and acceptance of one another. The problem is that we all have very different ideas about what that means. The solution, says Paul, is keep your eyes on the gospel. All the way through these chapters, verse 14, chapters 14 and 15, all the way through, he is peppering his main points with examples from the gospel. So, for example, in verse 9, for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living, the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother and sister? Jesus is Lord and judge, not you. Don't take Jesus' role. Or verse 15. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone 
for whom Christ died. Christ died to save people. Don't you start working to break them down. All food is clean, he says in verse 20. Um, Oh, sorry, that's not the right one. Begging your pardon. Chapter 15, verse 2. Each of us should please our, our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. Christ came to serve others. You serve others. Again, later on in verses 7 to 8. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Christ accepted you. You accept each other. I'm of the satnav generation. I won't deny it. I can't go anywhere without getting my satnav out and putting it on. I literally don't think I could leave Felixstowe without getting lost, without having the satnav open in front of me. Now, I admit not everybody is like that, and I admit that there are disadvantages to this approach. I'm totally in the hands of my satnav all the time. But it's wonderful, really. I don't really have to think for myself. Um, And it tells me when there's traffic up ahead and tells me where to go, and so I don't have to spend that much time planning the route or anything like that. Um, Though I can hear some of you mentally tutting me, even as I say that. Um, Now, the point of that is to say that actually as Christians, we do need to be a bit of a satnav generation when it comes to the gospel and how to live accordingly. Actually, we need to avoid thinking, do you know what, I think I'm just going to go my own way on this one. I know that the gospel says this is how we should, how Christ relates to us and therefore how we should relate to each other. But I think it makes more sense to go this way. Actually, we need to just put our hands, ourselves fully, fully in the hands of the gospel to guide and direct the way we live. Paul says it is the gospel that determines the shape of how Christians live, not the law, and certainly not your opinion. So how do we resolve this problem that stops us from getting to have a culture in the church that says, We are accepting and gracious and reflecting of the gospel. The answer is to keep the gospel in view all the time. And that's what Paul does. Now, Tim expertly and carefully and very faithfully expounded this principle at length for us last week. And so that saved me a bit of time this week, uh, which I'm very thankful to say. But last week, he focused on the weaker brother. The weaker brother, remember, is the one who doesn't have a weak faith, who isn't a weak Christian, or doesn't have weak convictions, the weaker brother is one who has a weak understanding of the freedom that they've been given in Christ. Their conscience is still sensitive to things that their conscience does not need to be sensitive about. And if that is us, if we have concerns about things, whether that's the organ or contemporary or formal or informal or whatever it is, if that's us and we have strong beliefs about those things and the Bible's silent on them, great to have a view, don't judge others by it. So um, I was speaking to a pastor a couple of weeks ago, he was telling me about when they began their pastorate, the former pastor was still in the church. Uh, I did this too, but fortunately, uh, Peter was not this kind of pastor. But the previous pastor would sit in the church and 
visibly shake his head and audibly tut every time he did something that that pastor didn't agree with. So one of the examples of this was um, that the previous pastor felt that the Lord's Prayer needed to be said every Sunday. And when it became obvious that the pastor wasn't going to pray the Lord's Prayer or recite the Lord's Prayer that Sunday, then that pastor would start to shake his head and And now here's the thing. Paul is saying, don't do that. And don't, don't just do that out loud. Obviously, don't do that out loud. Obviously. But don't do that inside either. That's what he's saying. Actually, you see a Christian doing something that you don't feel comfortable doing, but the Bible's unclear on it? Don't tut about them. Receive them the way that Christ received you. Do you think Christ tuts about you? You think, oh, I, I accept Andre, but... I tell you what, it would be very easy for me to think that. It would be extremely easy for me to think that that's how Christ accepts me. Because I touch it myself all the time. But that isn't the gospel, is it? Christ doesn't accept you but go, doesn't touch at you. He receives you as one of his own. And so that's how we should receive each other. That's what Tim covered last week. But now we're going to flip the table a little bit. And we're going to talk about it from the perspective of the stronger brother, the one whose conscience allows them to do the things that other Christians don't feel comfortable doing. Let's take Halloween, for example. Many Christians feel, and I understand this, that Halloween is not appropriate for Christians. Other Christians do not feel the same. So if you see someone, a Christian family, allowing their kids out to go and trick-or-treat, and touch at them, because the Bible's not clear on this. And every Christian must make up their mind on their own conscience about these things. But at the same time, you can kind of reverse tut. So I can be the one who tuts at the Christian for allowing their kids to go uh, out for Halloween. But I can also be the kind of Christian who is allowing his kids to go out to the Halloween trick-or-treating, and then tutting at the person who doesn't. Backwards Christians haven't understood their freedom in the gospel. Tut, tut, tut. And Paul's saying, don't do that either. That's not the point. So you have one Christian who firmly believes that a Christian should not drink alcohol. Another person who firmly believes that a Christian should. They go out to dinner together. together. Can you imagine the scenario? The Christian who believes you can drink alcohol orders wine. The Christian who believes that they can't drink alcohol does not order wine. They both touch at each other. The one touts at the other, the, the teetotal Christian touts at the other for doing such a, a, a heinous thing as ordering a glass of wine at their meal. Tut, tut, tut. But then the other Christian, and we, that's what Tim covered last week, don't do that. You have no right to do that. But then the other Christian might reverse tut and say, how dare they tut at me? Or how dare they think not order wine, when in fact they're free to do so. Don't they, haven't they read their Bibles? Is their theology so bad that they don't even feel free enough to take a glass of wine? Tut, tut, tut. And Paul's saying, don't do that either. You see, that's not the idea. The idea that Paul is rooting for here is that those two Christians go out together for a meal and one orders a glass of wine because he feels free to do so, the other does not order a glass of wine because he doesn't feel free to do so, and they live happily ever after. Is that so difficult? Well, yes, it is, as church history has taught us. But that is the ideal that Paul is going for. 
Now, Paul is very, very concerned that for those of us who have freedom, our consciences have strongly been freed by the gospel, that we don't feel like we have to observe certain days or, 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 or celebrations or feasts, and we don't feel like we have to uh, uh, abstain from wine or something like that, and we feel that we're, we're able to, in good conscience and for good reasons, do things that some Christians may find uncomfortable. Don't use your freedom, he says, in a way that is unloving to others. So verse 15 of chapter 14, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. So in other words, as a church, if we're going to have lunch together as we do from time to time as a church after the service, and we're a congregation of Jewish and Gentile believers, and we know full well that there are many in the congregation who do not feel comfortable eating pork, then it would just be jolly and sensitive to serve only bacon, you know, pork served three ways, bacon, rolls, you know, pork shanks and something else pork related, ham sandwiches, and, and you know, and that's all the option. At that point, your, your Jewish Christian friend has really little option. He either doesn't eat or he sins against his own conscience. Because this is what Paul's concern is. That actually, if you believe that something is wrong and you do it anyway, you are sinning in terms of the attitude of your heart. And if you are putting another Christian in a position where you are compelling them or forcing them to sin against their own conscience, that is unloving and has the potential to shipwreck their faith because you are forcing them to go against their conscience. So let me give you the scenario. The two Christians that go out for dinner, one has a glass of wine, the other doesn't. Except the one who has the glass of wine, whose conscience is the stronger brother, his conscience allows him to have that glass of wine, doesn't accept the fact that his weaker brother will not have a glass of wine, and pushes the point. I think you should have a glass of wine. Let me buy you a glass of wine. Why aren't you having a glass of wine? Paul's saying it's true that if he's thinking Christians shouldn't have glass, a glass of wine, actually, he's not correct in his thinking. But you don't get him to the point of freedom by forcing him to drink wine. Obviously, you don't. And by the way, there might be lots of good reasons why Christians might decide not to have alcohol. I'm not talking about that. A Christian might know that he's free to have alcohol, but just chooses not to because, I don't know, they don't like it, or they think in a particular situation it might be unwise. There's lots of good reasons why you wouldn't. But I'm talking here specifically about the Christian whose conscience is bound by something that isn't in Scripture. And so they, they don't want to because they feel like to do that would be sin. If I continually buy that person a pint of beer until eventually they give in and have the pint of beer and sin against their conscience, I'm forcing them to do something against their conscience. I'm destroying their faith. Don't do that, says Paul. We have to be careful here because often this gets misunderstood. It gets misunderstood because it gets taught a little bit like this. Don't do anything that might be offensive to another Christian. 
Because if you do, you will cause them offense and that will be unloving. Here's the problem with that, is that if I had to write down a list of what everybody felt offensive, there would be lots of contradictions on that list, as I've tried to illustrate at the beginning. So whose conscience do you try not to offend in that scenario? That's not the point. The point isn't that I can't ever wear brown shoes because someone in the church thinks that brown shoes are inappropriate for church. The point is that I can't go up to that person and put pressure on them to wear brown shoes. You think this is a silly example. I'm not actually joking. Someone did say that to me. But I'm not held to ransom by that. It's not that, oh, suddenly we have to, oh, anyone wearing brown shoes here? Sorry, could you, could you take those off? There's someone here who finds that offensive. Of course not. You don't hold the whole church to ransom according to someone who has a poor understanding of the gospel. No, that's not the point. The Lord Jesus didn't do that. I think it is fair to say that as you read through the Gospels, the Lord Jesus went out of his way to offend people with certain views. He went out of his way to offend people on matters of the Sabbath, for instance. He spoke in deliberately shocking ways so as to cause offense when it was necessary to do so in order to help to understand the Gospel. That's not what's going on here. But if you know that a brother, as absurd as it may sound to you, because that isn't the point, who doesn't feel comfortable wearing brown shoes, don't force him to wear brown shoes. Don't put up a sign outside the church that says, only those with brown shoes are allowed in, in order to get him over his obstacle. He'll get there. But you don't get him there by forcing him to sin against his own conscience. This isn't very gracious and accepting. You might think it's absurd. That's your opinion. Keep that to yourself. And certainly don't touch at them for doing that. This is the graciousness and acceptance that Paul is driving at. That everybody is able to coexist with everybody else because we know the difference between something that is primary and clear in Scripture and something that is secondary and unclear in Scripture. We know that difference. And even in those cases, you don't have the right, the authority, to excommunicate yourself. This is good news. You have no authority to say to yourself, I am not good enough to be a church, I'm a fraud, I'm a fake, and if they only knew me, they would kick me out of the church. I'm not going to come anymore. You have no authority to excommunicate yourself. That can only be done by the church, thank you very much. But neither, and this is very important, do you have the authority to informally excommunicate somebody else or the way that so-and-so behaves, letting their kids go to Halloween, having a glass of wine, or not letting their kids go to Halloween, not having a glass of wine, they can't really be a Christian. And they write that person or those people off. They informally excommunicate them. We have no authority to do that. Only the church, as led by its elders, has the authority to excommunicate anybody else. And Paul is saying, 
that until such a drastic action as that is necessary, your posture is one of grace and full acceptance without touching. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the word that you have given to us that not only expounds to us so clearly what it is that the Lord Jesus has done for us, that he has given his life for us in order to save us, that he regards us as his own, that we are precious in his sight, not because of our value and worth, not because of the way that we live, but by his sheer grace alone. Our Father, we thank you so much that he has accepted us fully into his family as beloved children without tutting. Our Father, we pray that these things might be so brought to bear in our thinking and our conscience and our minds that we too would be able to have the same mind as our Lord Jesus and to accept one another and to forgive one another and to receive one another and to uphold each other and encourage each other and love each other and strengthen each other and consider others better than ourselves and become servants of others. Keep us from the Pharisaic traps of becoming critical and judgmental towards one another. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.